Welcome to the Fergus Falls Business Spotlight Podcast, the show that takes a deep dive into local businesses and the individuals that run our community. To guide you along the way, here's your host, Jacob Bittner. Welcome back to another episode, people of Fergus Falls, surrounding areas, whoever's tuning in today, thank you very much for lending us your ear. I'm here with, uh, you were, you're, when did you graduate? A couple years behind me, 2000, yeah, 2011, 2011, yeah. a 2011 Fergus Falls graduate here, Taylor Gray. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks. Uh, yeah. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm pretty, I'm pretty excited. This is one that, uh, going to be a little different spin. We're not talking Fergus Falls business today. We are talking more about a topic. Um, this this is kind of funny because this podcast was never going to be political or religious or anything. And like that wasn't my plan, but it's really cool to see what people from Fergus have done with their lives and the industries that they've gone into. So you are uh, at your professor at Penn State. Mm-hmm. Give me your, you work with religion, but give me that official title. It's very long. (laughs) Yeah, it is. It's a mouthful. (laughs) Typical academia. Um, So I'm an assistant research professor in the Department of Classics and Ancient Mediterranean Studies. So I teach things um, related to the Bible, Jewish studies, ancient Near Eastern or ancient Middle Eastern religion um, with kind of a focus on mythology, concepts of deities, things like that. So... Do you know when the pyramids were built? <laughs> Do we know when the pyramids were built? <laughs> so I, I am not an Egyptologist. Okay. So ancient Egypt is a little bit outside of my wheelhouse, um, mainly because it is uh, a, a sort of an insular civilization in the ancient world. And I don't know Egyptian, though I've been sort of studying Middle Egyptian on and off for the last year and a half. Um yeah, not the most qualified to talk about ancient Egypt. Hey, well, I'm going to probably pick your brain about all kinds <laughs> sure. of stuff later yeah, yeah, on yeah. in the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, before we get started, though, we are drinking some Stumbino's coffee. Do you get Stumbino's in your neck of the woods? Where's Penn State at? Uh, State College, which is central Pennsylvania. Okay, okay. Do you, you you don't get Stumbino's out there? You don't get it shipped out there? So you're just enjoying this delicious cup I'm of d- I'm, I'm enjoying it right now. Every time I come home. Yeah, it it's great. I've got this. It's the Haggai blend that they've provided me with here this morning. It's a medium roast blend. It is sweet, savory with notes of black tea and cocoa. Yeah. It's delicious. It's, it is really delicious. So. And it's a good, uh, good post-exilic biblical character too. Yeah. I'm closing in. I'm closing in on a year of, uh, I think, well, the, almost a year of the podcast and Stambinos has been with since just about the beginning. So I've really, really appreciated drinking this drinking this coffee over the last year it's been it's been delicious but on top of stumbinos i do have to thank elevate dispensary victor lundin's company hotel eight biffley's bookmark and lakes area grow co for all your guys' support and uh yeah let's hear about your background how you got into doing what you're doing and then we'll talk about some deeper stuff later on sure yeah um so the short version of the story is i grew up in fergus falls and had, um, kind of a very typical experience of growing up in Fergus Falls, had a relatively religious upbringing in Christianity. And I eventually wanted to, uh, get involved in church ministry of some kind or parachurch ministry. So I went to undergrad, um, at Colorado Christian university in Denver. And at that time I wanted to do uh, youth ministry. 
somewhere along the way. There was a bunch of you guys. Sorry to interrupt. No, no, no. There was a bunch of you guys that went out to Colorado, Mm -hmm. Colorado Christian, right? There was like a huge group of Fergus, Fergus grads from that year. Yeah. Um, there were eventually like, I think in total they're not, let's see. Um, I think seven total Dang. that ended up out so you guys there. Had a, just, you guys just took over out yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Out there. Nice. <laughs> it, was, it was a good time. We were, we, like, people knew us. As, and there were multiple other people from Minnesota. So there was, like, a huge Minnesota contingency. Mm. Um, so it was really fun. It was a good time. Yeah. So when I was there, um, I initially my initial major was youth ministry. And about, like, halfway through my first year, I realized that I really enjoyed studying the Bible Um, I had taken a couple of classes that just got me really interested in reading texts closely, um, and thinking about history and the exchange of ideas and all this sort of stuff. And I switched my major to theology, but when I switched my major, um, I tried to make it more of a biblical studies degree. So like I took a lot of Bible classes rather than theology classes. Mm. So I did that and Somewhere along the line in that process, um, I decided that I no longer wanted to do ministry. I wanted to be an academic. And so uh, I spoke with some of my professors uh, at the time there, and they suggested going to grad school. I applied to a couple of different grad schools. I was accepted to the University of St. Andrews. And so I went there, did my master's degree, and I then met um, a scholar there who... uh, I got along really well with, and so her research and my interests were very similar. So I applied for a PhD, and then I did a, a PhD over the next four years. So I finished my mm. PhD and technically like around the end of 2020, but I graduated in 2021. Gotcha. Okay. So then, for, at, from there, did you start like a like a, a student teaching job, or how does that, or, or an apprenticeship, or internship, or how does that work after college? Yeah. After it's, that? Probably was included in your four years there, I assume. Yeah. So like during most people's um, grad school career, you have some form of teaching. You you get some form of teaching experience. Um, the, the UK university system is a little different, but I function more or less as a TA for most of my time as a. Um, Wait, where's St. Andrews? Scotland. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I didn't. Uh, okay. So you went there. You were there for four years. Five. Five years. Yeah. And. um. You're a ginger. Mm-hmm. So does that bringing you back to your roots? Was that, is that home for you? Are you Scottish? Do you have, do you know what your ancestry is all about here? Yeah. Um, surprisingly very little, um, like British Isle, um, <clears throat> ancestry, uh, more Scandinavian and then like German, Bavarian, Austrian kind of stuff. So you got a master's in religious studies or what was the degree? So the, so it's tech, it's called a master's of literature and it literature. was in biblical languages and literature. Okay. Mm-hmm. And getting that because oh, it was a different, probably a way different perspective from Colorado Christian mm-hmm. to going over to Scotland, mm-hmm. the, you kind of get a little bit more of a world overview, I suppose, because um, different regions, I don't know what the, what the religious breakdown is or how that works. But did you, did you feel like it was a different perspective completely on the way it was, that things were looked at yeah. there versus here? Yeah, definitely. Um, I think that in, and maybe even more specifically, Colorado Christian is an explicitly evangelical Christian university. So it has a statement of faith. 
and it has theological commitments, it has particular things in its curriculum because of its theological commitments. The University of St. Andrews is a quote-unquote secular university. It, right. it, it doesn't have a particular religious um, leaning. The Divinity School historically does uh, train clergy for people in um, in the UK, but you take very specific courses to do that. So the people I studied with at St. Andrews were just, you know, Jewish, Christian, or non-religious scholars. Right. right. So the, the, the perspective was very different in terms of the sorts of conversations I was having, the kinds of things we were reading, um, the kinds of students that were there, mm-hmm. very much more diverse than at CCU. Yeah. Well, I want to pick into your brain about how you kind of got into your current gig with Penn state, but what about like earlier childhood jobs? Like were you working jobs around town here? Oh yeah. Um, let's see. Well, my first job was in middle school and I worked for McDonald's. Nice. So that was, I was really, really little, had a little stint doing that. Um, and then over the, uh, the course of like more so, uh, late high school. And then, uh, during undergrad, I would come back for the summers and work. And, uh, I worked at the, uh, Lake Ave cafe in battle Lake for a couple of summers. Um, and that was a great time. Um, got to hang out with friends and fry some burgers and flip some patties. It was a good time. And then, uh, I did a lot of painting, uh, outdoor painting for, for a business periwinkle in, in Ottertail. Okay. So you are married. Mm-hmm. Um, where did you meet your wife? In Fergus. In Fergus. She's from Fergus. She's from Fergus. Okay. High school sweethearts. N- no, after high school, um, towards the end of my, like right before I went to Scotland, um, okay. the summer in between those, those times we sort of met and started hanging out and, over the course of that process, uh, we dated long distance and then got married in 2019. Gotcha. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Um, and so coming out of grad school then, what opportunities did you have and how did you, did you hop around a little bit before you landed where you're at now? Or was that your first job out of school? Um, it was not my first job. So my story is a little weird because uh, I finished during COVID and so- the job market was completely frozen. Um, universities weren't hiring. Of course, everything was shut down. And so I completed my PhD and really had no job prospects. So, And at the time, um, we had moved to Pennsylvania. Um, my wife is uh, a PhD student in the geosciences. And so we went there for her grad school um, or for, for her grad program. And Uh, I ended up initially finding a job online teaching biblical languages. So I was teaching Hebrew and Aramaic, uh, over zoom to, um, usually non-traditional students. So like usually retired adults who wanted to learn the original languages. So you know, some, you know, those original languages, Hebrew, Mm -hmm. how many different languages do you know that I can work my way around a lot of ancient Semitic languages, um, trained in Greek and, yeah. Dang. So the, that's the most, one of the most interesting parts of your, of religious studies, right? Is mm-hmm. the translation and um, the in language in general, like that disconnect between 
certain word associations and certain meanings or like, well, like example of what I'm trying to wrap my head around is like, I know there's some languages that like the word, the word for stutter doesn't exist Mm. and there's no stuttering in that language or something like some, some like crazy, like there's just like language changes everything. Um, If you know two languages, you have a different personality in another language, you know, like you are a different person when you speak another language essentially. Mm -hmm. So that's, there's probably got so much, but is it a simpler language? Like those ancient languages, is there less words? Is there less words to describe things? Um, Are we more descriptive now with the English language? Well, it's a little tricky in the case of like, let's take Hebrew as our case. Um, Aramaic is a little different. Um, and I can talk about that if you want, but um, biblical Hebrew is um, a dialect of a particular group of languages that exist in the ancient world. Not, I mean, similar to modern Hebrew, but but quite different because modern Hebrew has been influenced by the Indo-European languages. But in the case of classical Hebrew, it's somewhat difficult to know uh, because the the Hebrew Bible is a relatively limited corpus. Um, I mean, it's big. The Old Testament is is a relatively big collection of literature. But when it comes to the vocabulary that exists within that collection of literature, it's actually quite limited. Like imagine picking up Moby Dick and trying to understand the complexity and diversity of the English language based on just that one book. Right. It'd be very difficult to sort of like really get a sense of how how broad the 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 language is, the depth of the lexicon, mm. the sophist- its sophistication. And so we don't have a lot of other texts that are in ancient Hebrew. We have some, but they're mostly letters. And so the our knowledge of that language is quite limited in terms of like how people describe the world. Yeah. Um, especially outside of a, a like a cultic religious context. Um the Hebrew Bible is much more concerned with those sorts of things. Right. So like, you know, how people talked about, I don't know, like uh, farming or chopping down trees or something yep. or like building a house is is pretty limited. Those are actually kind of bad examples because there are good examples in the Bible of this. But um, hopefully you get my point. Yeah, no, you know? totally, totally. Yeah. It, yeah. Like I think, yeah, that, that totally makes sense. It, it, it'd be like taking a – because we just have limited writing didn't exist – in a in mass form for many many years. I mean, yeah. we can talk about origins of Earth if later if we want to. How yeah, old the Earth great. might actually be. <laughs> but um, did we get to where you were with Penn? How you got with Penn State? Did the, we get to that part of your story no, yet? No, okay, okay the, the, let's fill that in. Yeah, then. sure. Um, so I, uh, it was very sort of happenstance, um, but I ended up when I moved to Penn State. I didn't, or when we moved to State College, I didn't really know anyone. And I had applied for a position in the New Testament. Uh, in New Testament, um, it was sort of a shot in the dark. I'm not trained as a New Testament scholar, but um, I applied for the position. Didn't get it. Sent some emails to uh, some people in the department, letting them know that I was around. But the semester had started, and so it's just chaos. So like, I didn't hear anything for a little while. But I ended up meeting a guy through uh, my disc golf community. Yeah, I played disc golf for fun. And I met um, someone that way and he knew someone in the department and he connected us. And what ended up happening is we had a series of conversations and then he um, brought me on to work on a couple of projects, research projects. Uh, And so 
over the course of about a year, I started teaching classes at Penn State um, on things like Jesus, the New Testament, the Old Testament, mythology, but then also um, conducting research and doing some um, editorial work for two different projects. Okay. And then that sort of just, everything just sort of the, the ball rolled from there and now yeah. you're kind of in, in where you're in with that. Yeah. So and now so this is my third year. You're an assistant to somebody with all with Mesopotamia <laughs> studies. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so I mean, it, it, the, the assistant component is just a, uh, a title. So right. I, I do have people who are um, more senior in my department than I am. Uh, and so Oftentimes what that means is like you collaborate with them or you, you work on projects with them or for them, you help them do those sorts of things. But I also conduct my own research. I teach my own classes. Okay. So the assistant part is just sort of like you're, um, a low level that I'm actually on the lowest level in terms of, um, uh, I don't know what the word is, uh, like your rank amongst yeah, the my teachers rank with, yeah, yeah, yeah. or whatever yeah. the professors. Yeah. So your day to day, you teach a few classes and you conduct a lot of research. You guys have like a bunch of running research and stuff mm-hmm. that you're like pub, like trying to publish and, and work through. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. So that's like where you hear about, cause you hear about work being done at colleges. A lot of times that's like professors, people like you coordinating with students, building, collaborating on trying to solve some, issue or explain something to people. Yes, that's okay. exactly right. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, and that's your, that's like how much of that is research? How much of that is teaching? I mean, about 70, 30. So 70% research, 30% okay. um, wow. uh, teaching. So okay. I, like I mostly teach one class a semester, sometimes two. And you're studying ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> Mesopotamia. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 ancient, like mainly ancient Israel and ancient Mesopotamia. So, Okay. Where we, I kind of did my, my assistant, my, my chat GPT assistant here, (laughs) according to, according to my assistant here, it looks like 3,500 BC is when, is when writing kind of emerged where those have been those early ancient clay scribes and stuff. Mm -hmm. That's kind of like when, yeah, cuneiform tablets, mm -hmm. writing kind of emerges simultaneously near the end of the, what, what, what here is, it says 3,500 BC, probably a little bit later um, in the fourth millennium um, in both Egypt and Mesopotamia. So writing kind of sprouts up at roughly the same time period. What do we know? Is it all just theories or what do we know? What do we know about the world before writing? Like how do we know about the world before writing? It's really tricky. It involves a, a very different sort of methodology when it comes to understanding what people thought about the world um, and thought about themselves. What we do know, you know, like we can we can still do the same sort of archaeological uh, in, uh, investigations where we can understand things like ancient agriculture, the organization of societies, cultures, civilizations when it comes to like infrastructure, construction of homes, burying the dead, um, you know. Uh, ritual sites, these, these things are like, there, there's continuity that moves into the writing period that we can sort of retroactively or retrospectively understand. But when it comes to like, you know, what gods did these people worship or, you know, what, what, what was their language like, or what did they think about, you know, politics or anything like that? Um, it's very difficult to know just because we don't have the same sort of evidence. So a lot of it is, is, um, based on analogy and, 
educated guesswork. Gotcha. And so the earliest text was that that Sumerian text was that like was that the form was that religious text did that build the form of a religion then was that like the Hebrew Bible that become the Hebrew Bible no or is that something else yeah so that doesn't become the Hebrew Bible so the earliest forms of writing that we get are mainly administrative and economic texts like sale receipts so it looks like writing emerges as a pragmatic tool so people need to record quantities of barley that they're shekels exactly the shekels it's i think we talked about the mesopotamian shekel on the bell bank episode i did (laughs) we were talking about the origins of money but like i mean everything started basically with that mesopotamian society from what we know obviously Yeah. yeah you can theorize there's many different theories some probably have I don't, I'm sure some have more scholarly backing than others Mm -hmm. as far as the date of the earth or the actual origins of life, whether we've evolved. I mean, that's all what you, that's all what we're trying to kind of wrap (laughs) our minds around when we're forming our own worldviews, right? Like uh, origins of life and all that stuff. So um, what, what's your theory? You don't have to get into like, I'm trying to like, I I'm, feel free to share what you want about your personal beliefs sure. and stuff. I'm trying to kind of skirt through this in a way that like, we're just kind of talking about yeah. things rather yeah, than yeah. diving into like opinions. Yeah. But like, sure. what's your theory on like how old this planet is or the origins of where we came from? Sure. Ooh. Interesting. <laughs> wow. Um, <laughs> not controversial at all. Uh, so um, how about I do this? I will say, um, I am not a scientist and um, I'm trained as a humanities scholar. So uh, my, (laughs) as an academic, I sort of defer to the scientific community. I think the scientific community has a sophisticated methodology. It's a very sophisticated way. uh, They have a very sophisticated way of verifying um, ideas about how old the earth is and how humans became what we are as animals. Um, and I generally trust that. Are there things we could squabble about? Yes. But generally speaking, um, I, I tend to take the position that the scientific view of the origins of life, how old the earth is, the origins of humans is, uh, probably right, or at least more right. Um, I think the Hebrew Bible provides its own explanations for where life comes from how like where the earth comes from. Um, but I think these are just ancient texts that are trying to make sense of things. And the Hebrew Bible doesn't even agree uh, with itself on, on some of these core issues. Um, yeah. So, I mean, um, these are just ancient people asking the same kinds of questions that I think we are. We just explain them differently and come to different conclusions. Right. Um, so yeah, take that for what it's worth, I guess. Like if you prefer to take a religious explanation, um, I think that's, you know, that that's fine, but that's just not the direction right. I go. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. And I was going to ask about this too. I assume your opinions, your worldview as it does with everyone in life, like especially I think as you get into your, you know, late twenties, thirties, you know, some, some people are, it's a lifelong, I think, I think worldview and what you believe is a lifelong journey. I don't think it's something that like, people are ever like, Oh, this is what I believe. And what I believed yesterday is the same as what I'm going to believe as tomorrow. You know, I think that that's a, 
but like, how has your worldview changed then from where you were kind of raised going to Colorado Christian and then going and getting exposure overseas and now like in more of a, I guess, secular religious teaching setting, like your mm. worldview's probably changed quite a bit over the years. Yeah. Yeah, it has, um, significantly. Um, I would say for me, the, the process was gradual. Um, and it involved just reading the Bible carefully, reading it in its original languages, understanding the historical context in which it was written, or at least trying to understand the historical context in which it was written. And that process, um, for me led me to, uh, the conclusion, um, and this, it doesn't happen to everyone, but it, it led me to the conclusion that the, the Hebrew Bible specifically, but like we could talk about like Jesus is at the same sort of situation, um, and the new Testament that these are ancient religious texts and, um, they are not necessarily any more convincing to me than any other collection of religious texts. That, but that doesn't mean that they don't have value or they don't contribute something to our experience as humans. And I think um, we would do a disservice to ourselves if we just sort of dispensed with them um, because like they're quote unquote not true or something like that. I, I think we could be more sophisticated and say, yeah, no, there's like some things here that we ought to pay attention to. Um, but you know, that, that was a long process for me. Yep. Yep. For sure. For sure. Um, let's talk about how religions have formed throughout history. Do mm. you have, a, you have a, you have an overview on that. Do you want to give me some insight on that? Sure. So what's the oldest religion that we know about? How have, how have things kind of formed over the years? I have some notes too here, but yeah. I'm sure you probably know more than my assistant on this topic. <laughs> I don't know. It is, it is the, the, the super mind of, of the modern day. So I don't know. Um, so, I mean, it depends on what we call religion. Um, this is a really tricky question. There's actually a book. There have been a couple of scholars who've written books about whether or not we should even use the term religion when we're talking about the ancient world. Religion is a, a Latin term that gets sort of, brought into conversation <laughs> relatively late in uh, human history. And so when we go back to the advent of writing, let's say in Egypt or Mesopotamia, can we actually call these religions? Um, they're worshiping deities and they're offering sacrifices. But I mean, everything about these traditions would feel very, very foreign and very, very different than what we call religion today. Um, like these people are praying to their dead um, ancestors for, you know, benevolence for, for some form of, you know, blessing, or they're trying to remove a curse, you know, um, they're setting up little, little figurines all over the place to prevent demons from entering their home. I mean, it's hard to know what we can call religion, but um, religion as like we would intuitively think about it just starts showing up um, kind of when we start finding architecture and organized cities and things like that. We, we begin to see things like temples, um, buildings that are dedicated to particular deities or something like that. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then like, as far as like the big religions today, what we have, you know, Islam, Christianity, Hindu ism, mm -hmm. um, Buddhism, like those 
some of those are which like what are the oldest ones that we know of? Yeah. So Hinduism um of the main ones. Yeah, yeah. You know? So so it, this is kind of tricky because like in terms of let's take Judaism, Christianity and Islam. Um we know when Islam is formed or like begins to form forms in the 7th century with the prophet Muhammad um in Saudi Arabia in in, in the western Saudi Arabian uh, peninsula. We know Christianity forms relatively soon. Um, as a as an early Jewish movement after the death of Jesus, sometime in around 30 or 33 CE. Um, and it's really the writings of Paul and the early evangelical movement of the these early Jesus followers that sort of spread what we call Christianity. But it doesn't really take on the term Christian until towards the end of the first century. But So we can do that too. We can sort of identify a moment in history. Judaism is a little bit more tricky. Um, and it's tricky because the term Judaism is not used in the Old Testament. It doesn't show up. Judaism first is used as a word in a text known as 1 Maccabees in the 2nd century BCE. And so roughly 200 years before the time of Jesus. Before that, uh, we have the term uh, Jew, but it has to refer to uh, a particular person living in a particular place. Like a race. Um, sort of, sort of, um, maybe more of like a, a Minnesotan. Yeah. It's more of like a socio cultural ethnic yep. identification. Okay. A, a lot of times in the ancient world, the way people identify themselves is based on, um, ancestry and land where they live, the language they speak, the gods they worship, things like that. Okay. Um, before that it's hard to, t it's hard to know. Like, can we talk about Judaism when we're talking about like, let's say the, the Torah is, is the Torah promoting a form of Judaism or is it an older form of religiosity? I take the position that it is an older form of religiosity. And the Torah is what? That's the first, is that five, five books? Yep. And that was what Moses, that was the earliest part of the Bible. Moses wrote the first five books. Is that correct? It's a, it's or? attributed to Moses in a tradition. It wasn't written by Moses. Um, it was written over the course of like for the better part of, few hundred years between probably 800 BCE and maybe 400 BCE. The, the Torah is sort of edited together. Um, what looks like during the sixth, fifth centuries BCE, um, it's sort of compiled into a larger work. There's this process over the course of the composition of the whole old Testament where smaller pieces of literature attributed to certain figures are sort of brought together and um, kind of put on single scrolls. And so like the book of Isaiah is a compilation of many different oracles that are written over a long period of time, but then they're eventually set and compiled into one long scroll. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, that's more explanation than I've ever got on that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, it's interesting. I, as far as like, it, I mean, religion's a very interesting thing because I think that the the basis, I mean, it's pretty simple, I think. The basis of what you believe, the worldview you f settle into has a lot to do with your how you were raised. It has a lot to do with your predisposition, mm -hmm. what your what your parents, if your parents brought you to church, whether your parents were or not, weren't religious. And then I think it has to do with your experiences throughout life more than anything yeah. and how you, yeah. um, I mean, the Bible is a book. I look at the Bible as a book of, people's experiences or people's interaction with the divine, I right? Think, yeah. Like that's like people's 
documenting how they've interacted with the divine throughout history. Um, and I think that we all get that. We all still have those experiences in our life, like those divine moments of like, oh, wow, this is God, or this is a power bigger than what I can understand that's at work here in the world. Um, and then it just comes down to how you kind of how you were raised and then your experiences through life and how you translate those experiences kind of forms the basis of what you believe. And I it's no, it's so easy to see how that takes mankind in so many different directions because people experience grief mm -hmm. in different ways. Some people live their whole life without ever having like a true heartbreak, meaningful loss. Some people just have loss after loss after loss after loss and can't understand why the world is so dark. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's just like a lot of different things that I, I, I don't know. It's, it's very interesting. Um, there's, there's a psycho psychological aspect to religion as well. Do you dive into that at all? Psychology? Yeah. Is that, that's something yeah, yeah. That you guys study? So, so um, one of the courses I teach at Penn State is a course on, it's called History of God. So the whole course is designed to introduce students to um, sort of the, uh, the big questions when it comes to mainly the God or gods of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Um, and one of the units in the course is on the sort of origins of religion and so there are a variety of different explanations that are given by scholars, um, both um, relatively recent, but also from 150 years ago, from anything from like Feuerbach and Freud to modern cognitive science. There are all sorts of explanations that are out there for why it is that humans as an animal evolved to be an animal that thinks about and worships divine beings like what's going on there okay. no other animals do okay. this i wasn't sure if i was going to bring this up or go here on the podcast but i feel like we have to <laughs> can we talk about the stoned ape theory can we, <laughs> we can, can we, we talk can try. about yeah sure so so let's just 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 for the people that have never heard of the stoned ape theory lay it out there okay. this is a very very much so form of like evolutionary based belief mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. if uh like me i'm personally like i haven't still figuring out my worldview. If I'm being hundred percent honest, I'm, sure. I'm a, I, I'm a Christian and I have a generally a, a creationism viewpoint, mm -hmm. you know? And, but also I, um, I don't, like, I don't know anything about science. You know, I just know, <laughs> again, I know about how I've been raised, the interactions I've had in life, the, my predisposition and my experiences with the divine have brought me to a point where I believe what I believe at this point in my life, you yeah. know? Um, but I'm, I guess I forgot where I was going with that. Stone Dave. But Stone I feel Dave like theory. I feel like you would do a better job of outlining the okay. theory. Okay. Yeah. So this is the idea is that we humans didn't exist. You had primates, apes, monkeys, um, and the oldest so one of the oldest organisms or you know, you can trace mycelium, the root of mushrooms, back to like ancient, ancient origins of earth. Like that's one of the oldest organisms, living organisms that we have. They say like 99% of things that have ever existed or animals or plants that have ever existed on earth are extinct. Um, and the mushroom is like one of the oldest ones that's been around from the beginning. Mm -hmm. So the belief would be that these psychedelic mushrooms or these, um, yeah, psilocybin or psychedelic mushrooms were readily available, plentifully available in these forests that these apes lived in. So they would feed off of these 
mushrooms and have these transcending psychedelic experiences Mm -hmm. that slowly but surely unlocked their mind to different theories and different ideas and developments of color and developments of tools and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And then that sort of like played a huge part in the evolution of humans. I could see an aspect of that being very, very possible because it, it, when you do have a powerful psychedelic experience, it does unlock your mind to experiences and um, processes. And like, it just like the, the process of thought is just completely different. Can't really explain it too much, but anyone who has experienced it can understand what I'm talking about, how you just think of things a little bit different than you thought of them before. So that's the stone date theory. Is there, um, is that popular amongst the scholars? Well, so the short answer, yeah, the, the short answer is no, <laughs> um, but, but for, but for reasons, but for reasons you can imagine why, I mean, let's, let's just like think about, you know, the presence of psychedelics in modern U S culture in general. I mean, they are until very recently, um, psilocybin, LSD, DMT, and just general, um, general substances that create altered states of consciousness have been demonized. Mm -hmm. And, um, we don't need to go into like why that is the case or whether that's right or wrong. It's just a sort of a fact of our culture. Mm -hmm. And so what ends up happening is like everything in, in culture, um, the way that we think as a society kind of dictates the questions we ask. And one of the questions that we don't generally ask is what is the relationship between psychedelics and religion? These questions are starting to emerge in academia. Um, and not just a stone ape theory, but like connection to the origins of every major religion yes. based off of some, you know, mm-hmm. Moses in the burning bush, you know, yes. like yeah. that'll offend some people. I'm sure, sure. A- amongst the Christian community, but like, you know, maybe Moses was drinking some peyote tea and had his divine interaction. I mean, yeah, there's no, there, there, mm-hmm. there are scholars who, who, who work in psychedelics who make these sorts of arguments. They exist. Um, there's, there are multiple academic journals that have these conversations. Um, what I can say, okay, so th- there's kind of two components to this. Um, the first one is like the stoned ape theory is an interesting theory. And I think it's one that we should at least consider as a component of explaining things that we don't understand about humans. The problem with that theory is, though, however, I don't know how we go about, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I don't know how we would do this, but I mean, the question I would ask is, how could we verify this idea? What sort of academic methods could we use that would actually verify this concept? Otherwise, it just is like an interesting theory. Um, And so if if there was a way where we could sort of figure out how to understand the relationship between consciousness and psychedelic experiences, uh, experiences and, you know, non-sentient creatures and all these sorts of things, then maybe we could start to like actually ask this question. That's seriously. like the missing link, right? right? That isn't that the, isn't that the, and there is like certain types of cavemen and stuff like different skeletal beings that we've discovered that are somewhere in between a human, mm-hmm. but we haven't, science really hasn't definitively found that missing link yet, or am I wrong in assuming that? Well, 
so the the evolution of the human species is is not so linear like there are different groups of um hom- like we're homo sapiens um but homo sapiens are just like one expression of a larger uh evolutionary process and this process does not uh, we don't go from like neanderthals to homo sapiens it's like homo sapiens and neanderthals coexist depending on which continent you're looking at like it depends like just like sort of how evolution works in general it really it's really region specific um do and, they know like environments they found those neanderthal skull, like skeletons mm-hmm. they don't can they date those do they know how old that stuff yeah, is? Yeah, they can, they can theorize. Date yeah, yeah, yeah. They can, they're also, I like, I'm not going to pretend like I know what those dating methods okay. are, but they, they do. Do you know what the date, do you know like how old those skeletons go back to or not off the top of your uh, head? No, I mean, yeah, I would guess, but probably make a fool of myself okay. if I was wrong. Okay, that's fair. But, <laughs> yeah. but pre-human writing. Oh, absolutely. Pre, like. Like 70,000 years ago yeah, or okay. more. Yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yep. Um, but uh, yeah, so I mean, um. I, so, so, so that's the whole like stoned ape right. component. Like, I think it's interesting to think about, but we would need to seriously consider how we would actually verify that. I'm not an evolutionist, but I could not be, I could not subscribe to the theory of evolution without subscribing to the stone ape theory. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Like, I like that's it. Gotta, that's where my like mind's you're, at. If you're, like, go, if you're, if you're, you're going to go there, just commit, just go there, you know? <laughs> that's awesome. Oh. Uh, so, but I want to, you might find this interesting. So one of the things that is being done right now with regard to religion and psychedelics in my field is that people are beginning to take seriously the possibility that ancient people in the Middle East and North Africa used um, mind-altering substances within religious contexts. Right. Um, and, and we actually know that this is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, Egypt and Mesopotamia have um, clear evidence of the use of opium. Um, the Vedas are very clear in, in the Hindu, in like in ancient India, that they use a mind-altering substance of some kind called Soma. We d- we're not entirely sure what it is, but we know that they're using it and they talk about it. Um, and in the case of ancient Israel, we know for a fact now that, um, there's at least one example of an iron age temple. Um, so, uh, eighth, seventh century BCE that has, um, cannabis on the incense altar. So they're like, we know that they were even using marijuana within a cultic context. Um, in, in this one specific instance, they use alcohol all over the place. And, um, there's been a lot of discussion about ergot and other, sorts of things like that. And so I think it would be sort of naive to say that, um, there wasn't anything going on. Right. Well, and again, for anyone who has ex- had a psychedelic experience, um, there is an undeniable spiritual aspect to that. Mm-hmm. There's an undeniable connection to love and the divine that, mm-hmm. In my personal experience in life, I've never experienced in another way. Yeah. Um, and I'll just kind of leave it at that. But then there's also like the the forbidden fruit theory mm. about mushrooms that like, you know, if you go back to like the story of Adam and Eve and the forbidden fruit, you mm. know, what was the promise of the fruit that you could knowledge of good knowledge and evil. of knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you for sure I've never had an experience that enlightened me to the knowledge of good and evil, like a psychedelic experience as well. So there's a theory that that is also 
part of the original original sin in the biblical mm-hmm. metaphor, whether yeah. that's metaphorical Genesis or literal. Um, there's a theory there too. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. I think I, I think the garden story is a really interesting example because it's very clear that what the humans gain um, and what is proscribed in the story has to do with wisdom of some kind. Mm. Um, the whole story is full of Hebrew words that are playing on words that are used in other biblical texts that are explicitly related to the issue of wisdom. And then, and then the whole story, I mean, they choose to eat from the knowledge of good and evil, not from the tree of life, um, which is very interesting. There are two trees in the garden and they choose to eat from the one that has to do with knowledge. And so the result is, of course, that they're expelled from the garden, but they keep the this whatever they gained about the knowledge of good and evil. Mm. Um, and whether that's actually like about morality specifically or something more, or this is more symbolic, who knows? But mm. I think it's really interesting that the whole story revolves around um, the question of knowledge. I mean, mm. um, the serpent is a very, like he's described as a character based on his intellect. This is this is the adjective that's used in the story. He's crafty, he's cunning, he's shrewd. It's not that he's like scary or mean or evil. He's mm. a he's a thinker. And mm. so he uses his intellect to sort of interact with the characters. Dang. I like it. I'm getting like chills. It's like <laughs> I love I love this conversation. I love it. So um but we have gone for about 45 minutes here. We don't need to talk about psychedelics anymore. We could, I mean, we could, I think it's a big, I think it's like a big, it's a fun, it's, it's a, a fun, big topic yeah. to, that intertwines with religion. It's really fun, but mm-hmm. I'm really interested in picking your mind about the current and it, it, the history of it and where we are currently with the global religious landscape and how it plays into our wars, how it plays into what's going on with Israel and Palestine right now, specifically. Um, I don't really know much about, I think, our conflicts with China are more economic than religious. Maybe you can talk about that a little bit too. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, generally speaking, I think it's important to, to be aware that the way we think about the world from a religious perspective uh, influences things like conflict. They always have. Um, this is just sort of baked into how humans seem to work. Now, this isn't always true in every society and every sort of religious tradition. Um, you know, in the ancient world that I work in, there's a far, uh, there's far less specifically religiously motivated violence. There are examples, um, but usually it's more like a king saying, my God told me to go take that land because I'm building an empire, so I'm going to go take that land. Um, but it's it's less of like your religious tradition is wrong. Mm. Um, we start seeing that idea actually really emerge in the in the Old Testament, um, where religious concepts that are not related to those in the Bible are abhorrent and need to be destroyed and eradicated. Mm. Um, this is the whole. I mean, this is the a major message in the Torah and in Joshua, and this recurs throughout the rest of the Hebrew Bible where the people who are indigenous to the land have religious concepts that Yahweh does not tolerate. And so like in Deuteronomy, you're just, when you enter the land, it says you just tear everything down, you destroy it all, you leave nothing there for you to be tempted to follow other gods. You're devoted to me. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is, this has to do with a whole bunch of other things related to, you know, the development of monotheism and ancient Israel's experience of, history and all this kind of stuff. But, um, so I mean, 
religiously motivated violence is not always there, but it really begins to emerge with the Hebrew Bible. And then, excuse me, and then um, you see other examples of this, you know, in the medieval period, like everyone will always talk about the Crusades, but also um, Islamic expansion after the advent of Islam. Um, you know, um, usually it's motivated in part by an attempt to spread a particular ideology. Um, and those that usually ends up being violent. Yeah. So the rise of like, um, it wasn't necessarily, I'm not sure when the term extremists was coined or like when we started talking about like Islam extremists or, you know, Hitler was a Christian extremist, Mm -hmm. um, example throughout history. Like, I'm not sure if that goes, that probably goes way back to, to those, like the extremists were the ones that were actually out there murdering people and, and actually out there cleaning house and that extremist, it fuels everything. So what is the conflict in Israel and Palestine right now? It really depends on the perspective you take when it comes to this, like how you go about accounting for the tension that exists um, and the animosity. And I think it would be reductive to say this is just simply a religious issue. Um, I think the the perspective I take is a little bit different. Um, I don't think it's completely a religious issue, but religion becomes the rhetoric by which uh, certain actions are justified. Um, I think this is more uh, of a an issue that has to do with um, a longstanding um, uh, <laughs> a longstanding sort of form of oppression. And so the, the conflict that, it, that we're currently witnessing um, is the result of a long historical process that had been taking place over the course of the 20th century um, and even the, the early 19th century. Um, but it's all over one piece. The fight is over one piece of land yeah, that has, over, that has gone over, back and forth. I, and it, yeah, yeah, up until really 2006. So is, is, and that's, is it Gaza? Just um, or is, both. Is, so, that, is that where Jerusalem is? No, not in or, Gaza. So Jerusalem is in Israel, but it's shared between like there's East Jerusalem and then which is uh, supposed to be part of the Palestinian quarter. But then the uh, other parts of West Jerusalem are, are a part of Israel. There's the West Bank. So the situation in Israel is kind of complicated, but I'll try and explain it really quickly. There are sort of three sections of Israel you can think of. The one is um, first there's the state of Israel, which is a majority Jewish nation. Um, and most of the people living there <coughs> are either um, indigenous to to that area or have um, moved there over the course of the last 50 years since the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. Um, the second component of Israel is an area known as the West Bank. And the West Bank is a mixture of Israeli and Palestinian settlements. We can get into what's going on in the West Bank, but that is a very contentious issue right now. And it has been for a long time because of uh, the way that settlements have been established in in the West Bank. And then Gaza is a, especially since 2006, has been an exclusively Palestinian area. Um, everyone living in Gaza is a Palestinian. No one there is Israeli. Um at least they don't inhabit it full time as Israelis and Israelis usually don't go into Gaza. Um, and usually most Gazans can't leave Gaza. Um, it's it since 2006, 
there's been a wall that has been erected around Gaza, um, and it is controlled on three sides, well, two sides technically, by Israel, the northern part and the eastern part. The southern part is controlled by Egypt, uh, and then the Mediterranean Sea is on the, the west coast. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so the situation there is, is, is I would say, uh, a complicated situation in, in the sense that this has been a, a, there has been a struggle over the land, um, I mean, historically for forever, this is, I mean, as with most and is ancient that, areas. But is that due to religious significance, historical significance? Or is that due to like trade and, and like uh, control of, of moving goods and services? Yeah. I mean, again, I think probably both would be the answer. Um, I'm trying to sort of be as like neutral on this yeah. um, as I possibly can be just because I don't want to make people upset. But um, the... The situation is, depending on who you talk to um, and which scholars you read who are historians of the region, will say things like the establishment of the state of Israel was motivated by the Zionist movement following um, some stuff going on before World War I, um, and then following World War I, and then especially following World War II. Um, and the Zionist movement is a particular uh, ideology that has to do with the idea that the Jewish people, the people of Israel, like historical Israel, have a claim to the land of Israel and have the right to establish themselves as a nation in that land. So let's pause, and, let's pause and talk about the significance of Israel as a nation and the role that that plays specifically in Christianity's theory mm. on the end times and the significance of Israel as a state. Mm -hmm. So ancient Israel, and then was Israel, it was, they were reestablished as a nation or yeah. can you talk just a quick brief overview of the sure. history of Israel sure. as a nation? Yeah, for sure. So the state of Israel or ancient Israel, uh, the one in the Bible um, emerges sometime in the early first millennium. Um, we, it, it shows up on a, uh, on a, on a carving from a little bit earlier, but like, we can't really verify that area in, in any sort of convincing way. So like most people say, um, ancient Israel emerges around 1000 BCE or a little bit later, uh, depending on who you ask that, um, group of people continues to exist sort of in a complicated sort of way in that region for the better part of a thousand years. Um, there are some things that happen like the Babylonian exile and the neo neo Assyrian conquest of the northern part of the country and all this sort of stuff, but that's beside the point. Um, this the sort of the concept of Israel as a nation, as a group of people that are sort of autonomous. Um, God's supposedly God's chosen people. Yeah, and, and, and quotations yeah, here, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Cho yep. I mean, this. I mean, this is quite literally what the Bible says. I mean, right. it, they are. Um, you don't have like whether you agree or disagree. Right. This is the 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 major line of the Old Testament. Hmm. Um, so these these people live there. Um, it's really in the Roman period, uh, in the sort of mid imperial period, where uh, the people of Israel are um, sort of dispersed and destroyed. Um, there's a couple of revolts that take place one one in seventy C.E. and then one in the early second century, um, and Rome just sort of has no more toleration for an attempted 
autonomous Jewish nation. Mm-hmm. Um, this had already been established about a hundred years earlier during um, the time of the Hasmoneans, a family that sort of revolted and established a period of um, Jewish autonomy for about uh, a century. But Rome doesn't tolerate that, and it's at that point that um, sort of the identity of Israel as a as a state or as like a, a relatively identifiable group of identifiable group of people in a place ceases to exist. For and that quite was some second time. century around then. Yeah. So that was kind of the peak of the Roman Empire mm-hmm. was the end of Israel as a mm-hmm. nation originally, mm-hmm. and then obviously. I think, I think the establishment of Christianity kind of destroyed the Roman Empire. Is that is that a accurate sort of takes statement? it over? It's sort of like the Roman Empire sort of fizzles out. In yeah, that, I, yeah. That shortly after. No, or I, not five hundred. Yeah, it depends on like what. Con- yeah, I mean, the, yes, that is true. That um, the fall of the Roman Empire sits somewhere depending on who you ask in like the sixth century, um, but the notion of like a Christian Roman empire persists all the way up until like 1050. Oh, okay. Um, yep, yep, and, okay. and there's like a split um, between East and West and, and papal authority and Christian authority across like the Holy Roman empire. Um, so, I mean, yeah. So, so then fast forward to 1948 and there's an attempt to establish and a successful attempt. So Israel didn't exist between the second century and 1940. Right. Really? Right. Dang. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So, so hit, like even during the Roman period, part of Israel is known as Palestine. So it was uh, always just Palestine. Mm-hmm. What was what is Israel now was known as Palestine for a mm-hmm. long time. Long time. And then, what happened? What was going on in the world in the in the middle middle nineteen hundreds that yeah. caused that? That was world world war. Yeah. So it's or, imme- it's immediately following World War Two. Okay. So. Um, there are a couple of things that in, in uh, the 1890s, there is a growing s- issue in um, Europe and in Western Russia regarding uh, Jewish populations. There's, a, there's rampant anti-Semitism and there is um, some really violent acts committed against Jewish people living in Europe uh, and in Russia. Pogroms are what they're called. And... Um, so there's an attempt to sort of push the Jewish population out. And there's also an attempt by people, uh, intellectuals within the Jewish community to advocate for their own nations, nation states. So that way they don't have to be subjected to acts of terror, essentially, and anti-Semitism and all this kind of stuff. And so you start seeing an emergence of rhetoric regarding an establishment of, an, of a state of Israel. This starts again around in the 1890s. World War One happens, and the British Empire comes along and sort of, um, following World War One, says yes, the Jewish nation or the Jewish people um, have the right to establish themselves as a people in uh, historic Palestine. Basically, construct the state of Israel. It's called the Balfour uh, Balfour de- uh, Declaration, and um, um, what ends up happening is sort of like. There are struggles within both because like there were historical Jews living in uh, or indigenous people who were Jewish who were living in Palestine at the time. Mm -hmm. And there are also indigenous Palestinians who are Muslim. Um, And then there are European uh, Jewish folk who are moving into Israel following 1918. 
and um, to establish a state of Israel. And there are all these like, sorts of skirmishes between the, these populations um, because these Jewish people want to establish a, a nation. And the Palestinians, the indigenous people, are like, you can't just like come in here and take our stuff. Um, and so there, there are fights over this kind of stuff for, for a while. Fast forward to World War II, and we know what happens in World War II. And um, following World War II, well, one of the things that was actually happening uh, early in the Nazi regime is um, the uh, European uh, Jewish folk were being sent to Israel um, and fleeing to Israel. Um, but like they were being sort of, they weren't initially all being sent to death camps. They were being pushed out of Europe first. And then it's sort of in the 40s, uh, the early 40s, that you start seeing the emergence of the death camps. Um, but the uh, so that probably caused the popul the Jewish population to rise in that area during the war. Yeah, yes, um, yes, that's true. Uh, but overall, like gen- significantly decrease. Um, but yes. Oh and, yeah, 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 yeah. But 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 I get you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but like in in the region, yes, um, more European um, Jewish folk are taking refuge in in, um, in that area in Israel. Yeah. Uh, and well, what is Palestine at the time? Come 1948, 1948, following the second world war, um, there is, uh, some attempt to establish a state of Israel. Um, the global community, uh, recognizes that like we have just witnessed, uh, probably the most horrific thing in modern history, if not all of human history, and we need to do something about this. And one of the solutions is to establish a state of Israel to provide an opportunity for exiled and dispersed Jewish people to live um, in peace and in security. So some different areas of the world are suggested, but ultimately Israel becomes a solution. 1948, um, a violent uprising begins um, in which people, there's an attempt to an attempt to establish, you know, where the Palestinians who are living in the land are supposed to go and where the Jewish people who are moving there are supposed to go. Mm. So they come up with, um, some ideas and the, this is where like we get into the West bank and Gaza and all this sort of stuff. But the, the short version is, um, there's a massive expulsion of Palestinians, roughly like 750,000 of them are displaced by, um, uh, Jewish people, militants and a lot of them also there just a conflict breaks out over this and the indigenous population of Palestinians are pushed into Gaza. The West bank is sequestered and becomes, um, both Jewish and Palestinian or uh, then now Israeli. And the, um, over the course of the, the next 50 years, there are just ensuing conflicts, especially in the West bank because more Jewish people are moving to the West bank and, settling in um that area and one of the things that ends up happening is they keep pushing palestinians out the biblical prophecy do you know anything about the the theories behind the biblical prophecy tying into all this and the and the return of the nation of israel yeah so i mean i think it's important to recognize that um it depends on which tradition we're looking at. If we're looking at it from the perspective of Judaism or from right. the perspective of Christianity. Right. In the case of Christianity, they're absolutely at the end of the book of revelation. There's the construction of a third temple. Um, 
and sort of there's a recreation of the heavens and the earth and like Jerusalem is remade and Jesus will reign as king in Jerusalem forever. Um, and so there's this notion that like among certain interpreters of the Bible that the establishment of the state of Israel is moving in that direction. Right. It's like, and it, it, it's sort of like fulfilling biblical prophecy. I'm a little hesitant to, to accept that. I mean, biblical prophecy is biblical prophecy. I, it's, it is what it is, but, um, I don't know that, um, it necessarily lines up with the biblical texts in, in the way that it sort of it justifies or explains what's happening at the end times. Right. Um, people always think the end times are near. Um, this is sort of like what apocalyptic literature does. Yeah. It just gives you this impression. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah. I mean, think about, think like we probably, life probably feels pretty tame compared to like, imagine living through world war two. You must've really thought that was the end, like yeah. dropping nukes. Yeah. Play, like people must've for sure thought that was the end of, of humans. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, so I think that is a, a current, a constant running theory is this is the end. This is the end. This yeah. is the end. I mean, um, this is even Jesus's line of argumentation so, in the gospels. Right. He thinks the world's going to end. So as far as, I think that that kind of gave people a lot more information than they needed to know, Sorry. but hopefully a lot, hopefully, I mean, that's so much information, so much good stuff. If you want to know about what's going on in the middle East and understand it, I think that that little 20 minute segment yeah. will help educate people on kind of the yeah. conflict Sorry. there. <laughs> and it's going to keep going. I mean, until, um, until there's a ceasefire, until there's some type of a ceasefire, it's going to yeah. keep going. Now the rest of the global conflict right now, mm. I don't know if you see any religious aspects driving it. I tend to think it's more economic driven. I think that we we're, we're at a war with the BRICS nations over a world reserve currency, and I think that that's sort of religion set aside. It has more to do with economic control. Yeah. Um, do you see that to be a true statement, or is there more religious? tyings between Russia and Ukraine and China and everything that I know about? No, I think I think your your assessment's really fair. Okay. I think it's far more of a an economic and imperial situation. Right. Um, I think we're watching just a, a turnover of power in the in the really the global north. Yep. Um, where the America had maintained control of much of the global north for the last more or less seventy years following you know World War II, and now the balance of power seems to be shifting, but this is what happens. I mean, this yeah. is always what happens yeah. uh, with empires and, and, and major economic powers like the U S just, uh, yeah, it's inevitable. Yeah. Yeah. It will happen. Absolutely. So just to kind of wrap it up, future outlook of you personally, and what maybe future outlook or current state of the world religiously, but future outlook for you, your career, mm -hmm. are you working on, how long do you have to put in there before you know you're going to be there for a while? Do you plan on moving? Yeah. Um, so with Penn state. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sticking around there for now. Um, I'm just kind of working on research projects, trying to write some stuff up. Uh, I've been developing a project for the last like year and a half, two years, and I'm trying to get that in writing um, and work on a couple of other things. So that's kind of the plan right now. It's just to keep, keep my head down and, and, and work on, uh, work on research and keep teaching. I love teaching. So I hope I'm doing that forever. Cool. Um, yeah. So you like where you're at. Hopefully yeah. you stay there. Yeah, exactly. Cool. cool. And then, um, people have also probably throughout history, 
thought that the end times are coming, yada, yada. And they've probably also thought that man is so evil and we need, we need God or like, you know, you need Jesus, you know, or like all that like stuff. Like, do you feel like I actually kind of look at the world historically. I think we're kind of tame Mm. as a civilization now for the most part. I mean, we have these bombs that could blow the world over 10 times over, but we haven't yet. So like, if you look at like the, um, you know, the more barbaric moments we've had in history. I think that we're doing pretty good for ourselves, but um, do you think the world is overall less religious than it has been throughout history or more religious than it has been throughout history? And where do you think we're going as far as global religion? No, that's an interesting question. Honestly, I have no idea. Um, The, the vast majority of the global population believe in a divine power of some kind. Um, and so, uh, I don't think that that's going anywhere. I think it'll just change what we call that thing or those things. Um, and what we call the traditions that we belong to, um, religious traditions change and turn over every, you know, I mean, Christianity has some continuity. Judaism has some continuity. Um, so does Islam, but I mean, I think if we look at the way human history has gone, those traditions might change. Um, So I think humans will probably always be um, somewhat religious. I think there's something fundamental about our cognitive framework that um, gets us to think this way. Um, And uh, I think there's tremendous value in in having a a spiritual outlook on life and um, whatever form that might take. But I think there's something really important about trying to tap into the sacred, whether that be encountering it through art and um, beauty or something like that, or poetry, or through the Bible, or through conversations with people. Like it doesn't really matter. But I think there's just something valuable there, and I don't think um, it will go anywhere. Right. And then as technology advances, I mean, theories, religious theories, the matrix theory, different religions are going to different religious theories or beliefs are going to continue to pop up as I look at yeah. like what, what's happening with AI consciousness right now. And like, what is human consciousness? Mm-hmm. What are we, you know, like mm-hmm. how close can we, how close is technology going to come to replicating yeah. a society? You know, there's the further we get into technology, the more you start to think about, well, maybe we're living in some type of a simulation. We haven't even talked about it. We don't need to go down that yeah, yeah. rabbit hole, but yeah. like, that's, I think, the future of religion as technology advances becomes more and more confusing. Yeah. I think the further we get into this deep fake um, movement with videos and AI voices and all that stuff, the more confused we become as a society, the more we start to question everything. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's going to flow into a lot more people with a agnostic worldview as opposed to saying, I believe this and this is what I understand, you know, like it's just going to be a lot harder to understand everything in general. I think the deeper we get into this technology, you know, so no, absolutely. I think that's true. Um, there's something, yeah, it'll be very fascinating to see what happens, but I think you nailed it. There's going to be some sort of shift in the way that we have to think about what reality even is. Right. Um, because if reality is no longer like objectively definable by like knocking on the table, but it, it becomes so much more sort of vague and ambiguous, right. we need to probably let go a little bit more. And history is so important to hold on to. And that's why I really like your approach on it. Um, as far as you might not necessarily subscribe to 
the ancient Hebrew beliefs or the the biblical outlook and the biblical beliefs, but that is our connection to the history mm-hmm. of the world's interaction with the divine. Yeah. And if we're smart people at all, we should learn from the history of anything. Yeah. You know, the history in general is to teach us to not make the same mistakes that other people have made. Yeah. And if you have a, a book that is this, or there's many historic books, not just the Bible. There's mm-hmm. many, there's many experiences documented about people's experience with the divine. I think that's all worth learning from. Yeah. So I'm, I really appreciated this conversation. Yeah. It was really it was fun. Awesome. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a chance to add something, but before we get out of here, I want to hear your biggest mistake you've made. I always get biggest mistake, best business advice. You're not really a business guy, but I'm sure you're going to give me some advice anyways. Sure. So let's hear a mistake first though. Biggest mistake. Like business wise? Personal business. Hmm. I mean, maybe a mistake in the, yeah, anything in the hmm. way your mind works or the world. I don't want to lead you in anything. Biggest mistake. Hmm. That's interesting. Um, I think it's a recurring mistake that I have, but it's feeling like I have arrived and I know what I'm talking about. Mm. I think that is a big mistake I continually find myself making and um, it frustrates me to no end. I just wish I wouldn't continue to do that. Um, so I would say that's, I don't know, trying to keep in theme with the conversation, I suppose. But that that would be probably that. You can't teach a man something that he thinks he already knows. Yeah. Or the, sec- <laughs> the second one is probably not playing high school soccer. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. You yeah. just missed, you just wish you would have played high I school just, soccer. I, like, yeah, I just yeah. wish I would have done it. All my friends played. and yeah. You would look like you would have been a great <laughs> soccer player. Did you play sports in high school? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What would you play? Uh, I played basketball for a while and okay. then I golfed. But no, you didn't play sports in the fall? Uh, no, no. Uh, I was just yeah, a fan, soccer just fan, team manager for a little while. Oh, okay. <laughs> didn't, didn't, didn't really mess around with, with fall sports. I played golf nice. in the fall and nice. yeah. All right. What do you got? What do you got for best business advice? Best business advice. Oh man. Don't take my advice on this. Um, <laughs> I don't own a business and I would probably send it straight into the earth. Um, my best business <laughs> advice would be, um, be compassionate I don't think the world needs more greed. I don't think the world needs more people trying to exploit other people. I would say create a business that is ethical and is something that gives life to people. So do that in whatever way you can, but um, I don't know. Stop worrying about money so much, everyone. There we go. That's the truth. That's the truth. Um, what about uh, anything else you want to add to this conversation? Wrap it up. Usually I ask people if it's a business, I usually say, how can people get a hold of you? Mm. Um, I don't know if that's something you want to want to, usually you're available to your students, I'm sure, but I don't yeah. know if you want to be available for questions to the I mean, listeners. Yeah, sure. I mean, absolutely. Um, my email address is uh, on the Penn State website. So if you just go to, if you just search Penn State in my name, you'll find me. Um, and so if anyone wants to ask me a question, email me that way. All right. That's the way to do it. Well, anything else you want to add to wrap up the conversation here, man? No, just thanks. This was really fun. It was fun. It was a lot of fun. I I always enjoy getting to see as much as I love talking to our local businesses. I enjoy, uh, there's an aspect of the 
conversation I really enjoy having with people who have left Fergus and gone on to do other things. Um, people from Fergus do great things. Yeah. We got a town that produces people that have brilliant minds and are, uh, you're going to be one that's influencing future generations. So thanks for sitting down and, uh, I look forward to maybe we'll revisit this again sometime. Maybe we'll have you on again in the future at some Sounds point. Lovely. Cause I feel like we just scratched the surface. We could have <laughs> talked. We probably got a, could have had a whole podcast about stone date theory if we wanted to. <laughs> so, but uh, anyways, thank you guys very much for listening. Um, thanks again to the sponsors. Stumbinos, uh, elevate Victor Lundin's hotel eight, Biffley's bookmark lakes area, Groco. I appreciate your guys' support and uh, tune in. Tune in next time to see who we got. So you guys have a good one.